podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Oh, the shark bait has such teeth there, and it shows them pearly white. So welcome everybody to this latest episode of Macklin's Take with me, Andy Clark and Matt Macklin. Hope everybody's well. Hope you're enjoying the extra freedom that we've been granted in the in the last few days. That's certainly been welcome. I think some people are probably quite a bit nervous about it after after what happened last time we went down this road. But we need to be optimistic. This is very much a glass half full kind of a podcast on Macklin's take 100%. So we need to all be thinking that the better times are are well and truly ahead. On to today's podcast. And what we're doing here really is what you might describe as a kind of real-time make or break. So regular listeners will be aware of the make or break series we started last summer in which we've revisited fairly regularly since then, where we look back on fighters' careers a lot of them still active fighters now, but we look back on their careers and, and we pick out fights generally from the earlier stages, mid stages. They could be area title fights, they could be world title fights, but the kind of fights were if they hadn't won, then things could have turned out very differently. Pivotal fights in in their careers. We've done it with all sorts of people and it's been really, really good fun. And me and Matt commentated on a fight a few weeks ago in Gibraltar where when it got made, we immediately kind of said to each other, this is... This bears all the hallmarks of a make-or-break fight. It wasn't going to be over for whoever didn't win the fight, but we knew that it was a massive opportunity for both of them. They were both undefeated. They both did have backing, the two fighters, but it had been hard-earned. They both felt that they'd been avoided, that nobody really wanted to fight them, that despite their results, they were in a situation where their face didn't didn't really seem to fit and they couldn't get the fights that they wanted to get. So the fact that they ended up in against each other was kind of, it felt almost like some kind of destiny. Uh, And the two fighters were Mikey McKinson uh, and Chris Congo. And it was McKinson who ran out a deserved winner on points over the 10 rounds. And uh, and Mikey joins us uh, for the podcast today. So firstly, well done. Well done on the win because uh, we both thought you boxed you boxed really well. Um, I kind of set the scene there. To what extent were you aware that this was this wasn't the one and only opportunity because you've got a very good manager in, in in Lee Eaton, but this was a massive opportunity for you. I mean, did you choose to kind of really embrace that and and heap the pressure on yourself, knowing you get a response, or did you try and keep it low key and treat it like any other fight? Because athletes can go. They could go one or two ways with that sometimes. Yeah, obviously this was like the biggest fight of my my career, like amateur or pro. Like I've waited a long time for my opportunity, and I've it's not as if I haven't been outspoken. I haven't tried to talk to get myself a big fight in the past. I've been in the top ten in the UK for probably three or four years. I've just nobody really knew who I was so I couldn't get that big opportunity and I was like a kid at Christmas when um Leighton gave me the call in January but I called Chris out uh, at the end of last year after my last fight so I wouldn't have called him out if I didn't believe it, that I could beat him um I think I'm the best welterweight in the UK on so like when the fight got made I knew as long as I put the work in 
and I'd prepare myself the best way I could. I would I'd be leaving Gibraltar the winner, you know. Um, I really do have a lot of self belief, um, and I do believe in my team as well. Like my dad's a great trainer, so so yeah, it was just a matter of getting the job done and being on a a big event like that, like with loads of like well known people around, staying in a five star shit, cameras on my face all the time. I kept myself to myself most of fight week in like in my in my room. Yeah, I wasn't there to be starstruck or anything like that. Like, I, I believe in myself and I, I, I trained really hard. Um, mentally, there was no way I was getting beat. Like this, like, I believe it was my destiny to be on big cards like this. Um, and now I'm finally got noticed, you know. So I said, I've got my opportunity, but I'm here to stay. And that was my motto the whole way through. Matt, it was an interesting one for us, wasn't it? We'll, we'll get into into Mikey's career um, shortly because it, it's interesting the way he's had to do things. I think people will enjoy hearing about it, like, like they did with Sonny, Sonny Edwards, a, a few weeks ago. But when we saw this fight, we knew because we've been doing this series basically, and you look you look back at these kinds of fights, and he's had another one of these actually earlier in his career, a couple you could you could argue you could see straight away how key this was for both of them. I, I'm not saying it's over for Chris Congo, not not by any stretch. He'll be back. But but this was always going to be, given their kind of recent histories and the fact that nobody did seem to want to fight them, a win a win here for either one was was massive. Yeah, look, certainly it's it's not the end of the world, Chris Congo. Or, and, and it wouldn't have been for Mikey if, if, if it hadn't have gone his way. But it, it, whoever wins certainly pushes on. You know, it's, it's a, a 50-50 fight on a big card. So it's a good platform. So whoever does win pushes on. Chris Congo, I'm sure, will come again. He'll learn and come back. But uh, certainly for Mikey here, it's uh, it's that sort of springboard to launch yourself forward into your career. Now he's all of a sudden, he's in that conversation of, you know, is he going to get a British title shot next? I'm guessing that's his short-term goal. Well, we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that kind of towards towards the end because I know that there are there are plans afoot. Um, that he was rather kind of cruelly told the other day by by Lee, oh, I've got some big plans for you. Big plans, Mikey. I, have a rest for a couple of weeks and I'll tell you, and then just relax and I'll tell you in two weeks. And Mikey was just like, how do you expect me to relax when you've just, when you've just broken that kind of news? One interesting detail about, about the fight, Mikey, as well, was, was that you, you got the call for it, didn't you? The day that you'd come out of isolation for, uh, from having COVID. Yeah, January. I, did, I was pretty rough for like a week. I, had, I was positive. I got a positive t- test and everything and I had to isolate for 10 days in the end I was more bored of like staying in my house and stuff like that but I was rough for about a week and then the morning I I was allowed out um Lee and called me saying Chris can't go in six weeks bear in mind I'd not even set foot on a a run or or, or the gym for two weeks um but because I had like COVID and I weren't very well my weight was already down (laughs) so so like I was the first thing I did was put my running trainers on. That's the first time I left my house in like ten days. Um, but they said, "Oh, only six weeks' notice." Like to be fair, I wasn't ever gonna get. I didn't ever expect to get a ten-week camp or, or stuff like that. The extra three weeks was just a bonus for me, being moved to Gibraltar like three weeks after. But yeah, I had COVID in January, and the day I the day I was allowed out, I got the call for the Congo fight. 
Matt, that, 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 that's what this is about, isn't it? You know, he's he, he was going into the fight. He's ranked number six with the WBO. He's won a, a couple of ranking belts with the WBC and, and the WBO and, and opportunities should have come his way prior to this. Uh, and he could maybe, other fighters would maybe have expected, no, no. You know, I've, I'm, I'm up here. I've, I'm undefeated. I should get this much notice and, and all those kinds of things. But, but he knew that you just got to take your chances. Things are not going to be perfect. You have to, you, you, when you get an opportunity, you've got to grasp it. It might not be perfect, but that's, that's the game you're in. Yeah. It's a bit like, um, you know, you can be the best fighter in the world, but if nobody knows who you are, you're not going to become a marquee name and, opportunities, uh, you know, he's a southpaw, he's got fast hands, he's not going to be the top of the list for someone to give a voluntary defence to. So, you know, just like Chris Congo sees his opportunity against Luther Clay, I'd never heard of Chris Congo until, uh, you know, he beat Luther Clay. He was impressive that night. All of a sudden, he puts his name into the hat, into the conversation as one of the, one of the top welterweights domestically. Of course, then the fight with McKinson happened. I wasn't aware of Michael McKinson. You were, Andy, because you'd, you'd seen him many times on a few MTK shows. But all of a sudden, I've done a bit of research, looked at him, I thought, well, this is a good fight. So all of a sudden then, you know, again, it's on a, it's on a big show, big platform. You know, you, you talk about A-sides and B-sides and 10-week camps, and I, I've spoke to you many times about this. You know, 10-weeks camps, like, who needs 10 weeks to get fit for a fight? No, you know what I mean? They all came in when Ricky Hatton, Ricky Hatton, it was sort of traditionally you need six weeks to get ready for a fight. Then it kind of pushed back to eight weeks to be that extra super prepared. And then the 10 and 12 weeks camps came with Ricky Hatton, but Ricky Hatton was putting three stone on. Do you know what I mean? In between. And he was a pay-per-view fighter, so he was, he was only going to box twice a year. That's where those things came into the, the conversation. Really, you know, contenders, fighters that are climbing the ladder, that are trying to make the name, that they, they should be ready to go, you know, and... I know it's different, New Year, and, and not sure what's quite happening. And it, and listen, I, I understand it's hard to stay motivated when you don't have a date. It is, you know. But you, fighters really need to get it, get out of the all or nothing mentality. And, and by the way, I say this to someone that did that was. <laughs> I'm not judging because I used to be like that all or nothing, that perfectionism. But it's not really the way you want to be going. Certainly not in this day and age. Now you need to be ready to go if the phone rings. You know, you, 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 you've got to be a few weeks away from getting ready. Obviously, he got the six weeks, and then he got put back, so he had a bit longer, so it worked out well for him. But not, anyway, I've, I've gone on a tangent, which I'm very good at doing. But <laughs> but anyway, you know, you seized the opportunity, you stepped up, you took your older dice, you fought another guy undefeated, Chris Congo. You know, you, you could you could have lost. Obviously, you believed in yourself, he believed in himself. And from, from our point of view, we, we get a great fight. Um, you won the fight. And now you're the person that pushes on and you're in that conversation to probably fight for the British title next, I guess. Um, Chris Congo, he'll have to rebuild and come again. Um, but look, it was, uh, from our point of view, we got to see a really uh, entertaining fight. It wasn't a war of attrition. It wasn't a fight of the year candidate. But if you're a boxing fan, it was a really uh, absorbing fight. Both me and Andy were quite surprised how quickly you started in that fight. Yeah, um, he, um, in the build-up, people were saying, oh, he's, he's not going to respect you because you, you ain't stopped many people. And he was saying he's just going to walk straight through me. I can't do anything to him. And all, everything he was doing in the build-up. So in the first round, I, I did get to him quite quick. But if you look at my last three opponents, have they've all been unbeaten. 
and I've dropped them all in the first round. So, so like, it's not anything new to me starting quick. But and then obviously the middle rounds were a bit close and it was tough to score like the like the four of the middle rounds. But I started quick and I finished the stronger one out of the two. So, so yeah, there was no in, in my head. I knew I'd won the fight when the final um, the final bow went. Um, my dad in the corner was like I knew he'd be stricter of the way he was scoring it throughout the fight because going over to a matchroom show against Dillian Whitesboro, we didn't know how it was going to be. Like, so he was um, he would, he would scoring it quite strict in the corner, but he always had me just in front all the way through the fight, so I knew I'd won. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't really have, have too much doubt about it because you definitely won the first three rounds and you had the knockdown, so you're, you're four points up at that stage. And the middle rounds were, were fairly even you could argue that the rest of the fight was fairly even but he would have had to have won virtually every single round from round four onwards to to catch you up and, and overtake you so it, it, there was nothing controversial about it remotely everybody agreed and Chris himself agreed afterwards that that it was the right it was the, the, the right piece of work by the judges so let's wind the clock back now because I'm always interested we're always really interested in 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 how fighters come through in in what kind of route they've taken through to the to the pros. So you mentioned your dad earlier on, Michael, Michael Ballingall, and he's a well-known uh, boxing figure um, for people who know their boxing. Definitely people might not recognize the name necessarily. Not everybody would, but they would. A lot of them who didn't recognize the name would recognize a face. Yeah. And you first went to the gym when you were young. I think you were four or five years old. You're from the Lee Park area of Portsmouth, same, same neck of the woods as, as Tony Oakey, who, um, who your dad, I think is, is pretty good pretty good pals with so you were you were kind of bred for this early on what are your memories of of uh, early kind of boxing memories because some of your earliest memories full stop must be must be boxing yeah I, I was um my earliest memories was shaping up indoors at probably four or five years old like I knew the basics quite early on and then my dad he was um for quite a few years, he was at the house second for Maloney. So I used to always go to like the shows in your call all the time as a young kid watching boxing. Like, I remember watching Johnny Tapia there. Like I'm, I must have been like seven, maybe. I went to all the shows. So I was always about pro boxing. And then um, obviously my dad was part of like Tony Oakey's team for a long time as well. So like, Tony was like a, he was like kind of like a, a family friend he was always in my house like most days type thing so I grew up around them type people I grew up around pro boxing um in the amateurs I wasn't so much as successful as what I wanted to be over three rounds if whenever I came up to a boy like came up against a boy with like the England vest on or whatever I'd lose on a split decision in the semi-finals or the finals I never won one national title as an amateur but all of my defeats were so close, but the guys I'm beating in the, the all the top amateurs I'm beating in the pro game like quite comfortably, so it doesn't matter, you know. I've just realised who your old man is <laughs> when you yeah. said that, and I'm looking at you. You're the spit of him, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm, just yeah. I'm the oldest of seven. Yeah. Well, that that's the interesting thing, isn't it? Because particularly at the minute, because everybody's wearing a a, a mask and a and a visor, it's it, it's fucking impossible to tell who people are in the corner at, at times at the moment. But I remember talking to your dad um, 
a few years ago ahead of one of Lucas's fights. Lucas Ballingall um, is Mike's Mikey's brother. Uh, they live together, um, so that that keeps them both on a nice even keel when they're when they're outside of camp, which which works well for what Matt was talking about earlier on about staying ready and and all that that kind of thing. And it, it's just a really interesting kind of boxing upbringing that because going to all those shows at York Hall and running around people's feet at ringside and being up in those changing rooms up the stairs, they always look slightly like they're falling down or you might be in the ones downstairs that kind of feel like they're in the basement when you're walking through the main through the main doors I mean not many people get that kind of that kind of boxing childhood I mean it's it's you must have some great memories of it yeah like like in like interviews and that I've done in the past I always said I've been in boxing my whole life like that's no joke I have been like around professional boxing my whole life so um, we, I kind of felt when I turned pro, I had quite a bit of like a head start on most most boxers type things. I've been about the game. I know little bits about the sport before turning pro. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm quite lucky to be from a boxing family, I think. Like my brother being a, um, a lightweight prospect at the moment, he's fighting for the English title in a few weeks. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm I'm pretty blessed to be from a boxing family. Like I don't really know much else, to be fair. Well, Tony Oki's a kind of legendary figure with, with throughout boxing, not just down, not just down on the on the south coast. And you talked about the amateurs there, and um, I, I know you were sparring a lot of pros from from an early age, from kind of like fourteen, fifteen. So was the plan really that you, you need? You need to box as an amateur. It is something that that you need to do. Um, I think ideally you would. Not everybody does. We've seen fighters come through recently who who haven't. But it's a very valuable schooling. But was the idea that you would always that you would turn pro sooner rather than later, get some senior experience under your belt, and then go pro? Yeah, uh, I see a, a like a home video a few years ago of me when I was probably five years old. My dad asked me what I wanted to be when I was older. It was always a pro boxer. That's all I was ever going to be. So, um, obviously, as an amateur, I, I boxed for like a few different clubs and everything. But my dad was always trading me on the side, always. So, um, so yeah, I was always, as soon as I was old enough, really, like I, I, I waited till I was, I think, just before my 20th. I turned pro, I had my uh, pro debut just after my 20th, because me and my brother turned pro the same year. I was 20, he was 18. Hey, hey, ki- hey, kids. Hey, everybody. Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in health, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called The Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to The Desire and Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! So it's interesting when you look at these kinds of, of backgrounds, Matt, because you get, you know, you get some fighters who are bred for the pros, like 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 Mikey. Um, so for Barrett would be another one. He he had a an amateur career, but his uncle Pat really was 
was kind of breeding him for pro boxing and he did the same. He was sparring professionals up around Manchester way when, when he was a teenager. It, it is important though, don't you think that, that you do have some kind of senior amateur experience or certainly that hard sparring experience before you turn over? Because otherwise you don't really have much experience of fighting men you, you you see some fighters we've seen a few recently turn over straight out of of youth amateur boxing from a really good level but you need that experience of fighting of fighting adult men basically before you're going to be ready for for professional boxing yeah i mean definitely i think there's uh, you get some great junior boxers and actually when they turn senior and amateur they have mind turning pro they turn senior amateur and they don't really come through. Do you know what I mean? Like they haven't made that step up. Maybe they need a couple of years to, to grow into it or to mature. Uh, but as an underage junior boxer, they were fantastic. I, I, I even know a couple of guys that uh, would have been around my age that would have boxed schoolboy, junior, absolutely brilliant, turned pro young, never, you know, went too young, didn't, didn't, didn't work out for them. Um, funnily enough, I boxed it. Uh, young England, I boxed one of the senior ABAs at 18. But at the same time, I'd been I'd been training the pro gym from from the age of 17, and it, and even before that, when I was down at Small Heath, and you met a few of the lads, Andy, we we done that piece with some of them, you know, Paul Ramsey and, and guys like that. I was sparring with those guys, you know, 15, 16. Do you know what I mean? So it do, it definitely helps you. Yeah? I know when Michael Conlon turned pro, we went out to LA, and he, he you know he met with Manny Robles and different things, and I, I thought it was important for him. Because even though he was 25 years old at that point and had a very extensive and successful amateur career, he had like probably 300 amateur fights, I knew they were probably going to be, they were going to probably try and fast track him if possible because of, because of his age and because of his amateur experience. And of course, at that time, Manny Robles was training a guy called Oscar Valdez, who was one that was a featherweight world champion. And I thought, you know, it was important for Mick to do some rounds with those guys to see where he's at and to see what, you know, the difference, because he was, you know, top class amateur, but, you know, this is the pros now and these guys sit down on their shots, they bang hard and you need to be in there just to, to gauge where you're at, you know what I mean? And uh, so, look, I, I, look, amateur experience, if you can box, get some international amateur experience, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. It really does hold you good stead. If you get WSB, even better. You, you know, you, that's like you've had a few pro fights already if you're boxing in that at a level as well. But also being in the gym, training with some pros, sparring with some pros even before you turn over, you know, it just, it just breaks you in a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And, and do, do you think... Mikey, looking at it, that, that's what you meant when you, you said earlier on that you feel like you turned pro and, and you had an advantage already over a lot of people who were who were turning over. When you look at the way other people do it, and everybody's journey is, is different, do you think that there's a tendency now, although things have maybe come back slightly the other way the last couple of years, but do you think for a spell anyway, there was a tendency for for fighters to stay amateur too long? Is that is that something that could damage your pro prospects in terms of your style, do you think, if you stay amateur for too long? Maybe. You've seen it before, haven't you, where they've had too too many like international like amateurs and they couldn't transition that well into the pro game. Like you said, it's changed a little bit now where there's the, the three-minute rounds and there's the no-head guards and stuff like that. It's changed a little bit more. 
and the 10-9 rounds and stuff. But there was a time where it was quite difficult for them top amateurs to make the transition. Like for me, I had zero international amateurs. Um, I I never went in the senior ABAs because I was still in like youth, like I was still in like the NABCs and junior ABAs at like 18. Like, because you can I think you can box in them at 18, 19 nowadays. So I never had a lot of senior experience, but I had 50 amateurs before turning over. I boxed some real good lads like Jordan Reynolds, Jordan Gill, Alfie Price. I boxed some like top top level amateurs, but with the senior experience, I would have always liked to have done the senior ABAs. But I I really couldn't wait to turn pro. Like I would have rather turned pro than than stuck about in the amateurs, where every year I was falling short in in like the last sort of stages of the national championships on like a a computer score of like 10, 9 or do you know what I mean? Like a like a really tight like um scorecards. And I could it, I could have just fell out of love of boxing at a young age because it was always I was always really unlucky in the amateur game over three rounds. So when I made that transition to turn pro, I was always going to be ready. Always. I think it's a fine balance, and it, and and look, every individual it's unique. You have to there's a lot of things you've got to weigh up. But you know, when I was amateur, let's say, and I'm comparing it to now, you know, I was what, like I say, I've been training the pro gym from 17, and even that small heat before that, even before I started going up to Paddy Lynch's sparring with Spencer McCracken and, and Robert, I was um, you know small heat. I'd, I'd be training with uh, Mark Ramsey, Paul Ramsey, so it always had that bit of a pro influence. Um, I think at that stage, I probably was thinking, yeah, I'll go into senior ABAs. If I win them on my first year, I'll turn over. You know, I always see myself eventually becoming a pro boxer. But once I got down at Crystal Palace and I was on the Young England setup and I went to the World Juniors, you know, I did then get into that situation. I was getting funded. And then, then all of a sudden I thought, no, I'd like to go to the Olympics. I'd like to pick up that international experience because I could see the benefits of it. Um, at that time, it was four two-minute rounds. It was computer scoring. Um, I went to the World Junior Championships in Budapest, won my first fight, boxed really well. Then I think it was the quarterfinals, I boxed a Hungarian. And the more I was beating him, the more I was falling behind on the computer score. I mean, it was outrageous, really. Uh, you know, and you'd see a lot of that. You know, I remember hearing stories like David Hay and Carl Frotch getting absolutely ripped off in Olympic qualifiers. You know, and then... When I did win the senior ABAs, um, you know, I went to the Acropolis Cup after that. Uh, and then, then I had, like, my next six months mapped out. I was, like I said, I was getting funded. Uh, I was meant to box against America. I had the Tama tournament. Um, I think the Felix Stam tournament, a few others. Um, and, of course, at that time, coming at the same time, Rob McCracken had... I'd won the ABAs, I think a couple of weeks later, Robert had lost to Howard Eastman and retired. And he'd kind of been dipping his toe in training fighters at the time with Leo O'Reilly, David Walker, down at the Lennox Lewis Academy. Carl Frotch had won a bronze medal in the Olympics. So I'd been the standout fighter in the ABA. I was only 18. And, you know, Mick Hennessy was negotiating a deal with Panos and the BBC about turning pro. So I remember one of the conversations me and Robert had, and he said to me about turning pro. And I said, well, look, you know, if I stay for the Olympics... You know, I'll be a much better fighter in three years or whatever. And he said, you'll, you'll be a better amateur boxer. He goes, but you'll also have a lot of miles on the clock. He said, Ivan Robinson 
was one of the best amateurs I'd ever seen in my life. But he had that many wars. He boxing for America. By the time he turned pro, you know, he was half washed up. Not completely, but there was a lot of miles on the clock. Then he had, you know, obviously the Philly gym wars as well. But, you know... You know, you talk about footballers that have a lot of miles on the legs. In boxing, you know, there's only so many hard fights you've got in you. There's only so many times you're going to keep going to the well. There's only so many hardships. You know, you're in, you're at a stage in your career where you're young, you're ambitious, you're motivated. But, you know, 10 years from now, <laughs> you won't feel the same. You'll have had a lot of hard fights. You'll have had disappointments. You'll have had training camps that you were really looking good at. And then you got injured. That... You know, you know what I mean? There's hardships. There's only so much of that in you. And it, it wears away over the years. But, you know, it, it, you do... It, it, and I think nowadays as well with the GB setup, it, it's like such a professional setup there. And I think they... I don't, I don't know the absolute ins and outs, but I think they sign a contract to stay amateur for a certain amount of time because they're getting really well funded. So they're in this system. You know, Anthony Fowler's one, you know, he, he turned pro quite old, really. A lot of miles on the clock there already. So... You know, he's kind of, he's 30 years old now. He's He's got to keep, he, he can't be, he's got to roll the dice every single time. That he's fight, every time he has a fight, I would imagine, if I was looking after him, I, I, it would have to mean something. It would have to progress his career because he's not a young kid. Like I say, I look at myself now and I look back and think, maybe I went a little bit too young. Maybe I could have stayed a little bit longer. But I think if it was three threes and the, the, the WSB was around back then, I think I would have stayed amateur. Do you know what I mean? But I think because it was four twos and because it was computer scoring, um, I don't think it was necessarily a great apprenticeship for professional boxing back then. I remember my old amateur coach saying, you know what, the way amateur systems go with the four twos and the computer scoring, it's starting to become not a good apprenticeship for pro boxing. You know, but now things have gone back to the three threes, no head guards, and there is the World Series about the WSB there. You know, I think, you know, depending on the individual, if he's if he's not as mature as what he might be, then I think maybe stay for a little bit. But also, it depends what your ambitions are, I suppose, as well. Like, you, you know, you just... I remember I remember got offered a deal with Frank Warren and I had a deal with uh, Hennessy and Panos Eliadis. And I was a bit emotionally torn because obviously I wanted to go with Rob McCracken as my trainer manager. But he was with Mick, and then there was the thing with Frank, and all that. but I thought Frank was the man to go with. Anyway, a few weeks later when he came back, Frank upped the ante, offered me a better deal. My head had cleared a little bit. And I remember going down to Crystal Palace, and I just couldn't get motivated. Because obviously, I'd always seen myself being a professional boxer, and I turned pro. But nowadays, where you're at, I think that's a bit of a bolder move to think that you will... I know you had that pro background. Your old man was very much involved in the pro game. Tony Oakey was a family friend. So you're kind of really steeped. Your aspirations, really, are about being a professional fighter. Um, but I think with the... I suppose then as well, it depends if... If you'd have got onto the GB squad and you were funded, maybe you wouldn't have wanted to turn pro so young. I don't know. I mean, what, what's your thoughts on that? Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios.
I've never really thought about it, you know, like GB fighters, they've got it bang off really, haven't they? So um, I probably would have stayed around for a couple of years and tried to get that Olympic spot and stuff. But to be fair, I'd never, I'd never even come close. Like I got to an NABC final and was completely robbed on computer scoring, like you were saying before. Um, that was the closest I'd ever got to boxing internationally. Like I, like I boxed loads of top guys, but I was always the nearly boy. So in the end, I just couldn't wait to to turn over because I was I was firing like six rounds with the pros at, from 15 years old, like the local pros and everything in the gym. So and more than holding my holding my own with them. So I remember uh, my dad used to send me away. Like he he uh, said when I was about I think I I was just turned 18. He sent me to Derby for the week or 17. Um, and I stayed with Oville McKenzie and um, I was sparring with like Rendell Monroe all the, all the gyms up, like all the fighters up there. Like I was having it hard from an early age, you know, um, for, for a young 17 year old lad to like, like do all that with like men. I remember the first time, now, one of the first times I went away and I was, I was sparring this, I think he was a journeyman, a journeyman pro and he was beating me up. I was only a young lad. I thought, poor, like, so I was doing that for a few years, going to different gyms, got and different pros and stuff like that. So in the end, I was more than ready. Yeah. And interestingly as well, you know, the being ready from a from a from a skill point of view, a style point of view, from the boxing point of view is one thing, and then. And then the business side of it is another. Of course, you know you've got your dad, and that's that. That's great because he knows it inside out. But but it was still a difficult beginning because, well, firstly you you went over to Belfast, um, so you just need to fill us in on, on on what that was about. But but I did hear you say in the build up to the fight against Congo and maybe afterwards that your first three four pro fights you basically had to fight for free. Because that that's how it goes sometimes. To get on the cards, you have to sell a certain amount of tickets, which which you're not going to do in in Belfast, probably because you're not from there, and you have to pay for your opponent and all these all these types of things. So although you've got this background in it and you are kind of steeped in it, when you sign those forms, you're into the harsh reality of it, just like anybody else. So so what were those? What what happened in those early days? What what took you to Belfast? It, it wasn't my first three or four fights. It was, I didn't earn a penny for my first 10 fights. My first 10 fights at all. I was a, a young, cocky teenager turning over. Like, and there was big ticket sellers in my town anyway. I was spending a lot of time in Belfast training and stuff. Like, my dad's got a lot of contacts over there. His, girlfriend, his girlfriend's from Belfast. Um, so I was over there quite a lot. Um, family over there and stuff. So... Uh, at the beginning, I was over there. I had my first four fights within, I think, three or four months over there. Um, and then even when I fought in Portsmouth, I couldn't sell enough tickets to fight. I was getting, like, luckily I had a few sponsors that would just pay the rest of my tickets. Um, I remember I couldn't even, there was a, bit, a few times I was scheduled to do six rounders. And because I couldn't sell enough tickets, they got, like, ended up being a four-round fight against the journeyman. I got to 10 and 0. I think I'd done eight four-rounders or seven four-rounders and two, two six-rounders. And I said to my dad in the change rooms after my 10th pro fight, I said, like, 
I'm well ready to step up. I just can't sell the tickets. Right. And he said, right, stay, look, just stay in. The, this was just before Christmas. It was the 10th of December. I thought Dwayne Green. And um, he said, stay in the gym over Christmas because that phone's going to call and we'll just take anything that's offered now. And um, funny enough, I left the venue uh, when I fought Dwayne Green and went straight up to the hospital because my daughter was born the following day. And we actually got um, in juice like, in the evening of my fight, like up straight after. And uh, so I was a new dad. Just all I was doing was training and, 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 and being a new dad over the Christmas period. And then a few weeks later, I got the call for my first title fight. And I was flying and, like, I got a call for my first total fight and I haven't really looked back since. Like, every opportunity that I've, I've, been, I've got, I've said yes to. There's not really any that I've turned down. So um, my first title fight was against Ryan Martin in Swindon. We were both unbeaten, but as an amateur, like I said, he was, like, the best amateur my age as a junior. I don't think he'd done much senior stuff. Um as a, he was like the guy at 13 years old, knock people out, knock, knock kids out like at our age. So I always remembered who he was, um, but he'd not grown for like, like ever since I've known him. Like he was like a big boy when we was kids and he was the same size as me when we were adults. So like I knew that I could beat him. And because we, he remembered me as an amateur, we both remembered each other, but he was the top boy. So he thought that it was going to be a walk in the park. It was gonna thought it was gonna be a walk in the park. We went to Swindon, his hometown. I was I got a hundred people from Portsmouth coming up, so it was the most tickets I'd ever sold at the time. And uh, I was booed and abused coming to, coming into the ring. It was actually four years ago today. Uh, it was the eighth of April, and um, I got the job done. And like his team was quite arrogant at the time, and like they thought they'd already won the fight beforehand. And I remember in the fight in his home in his home city. I was beating him. I was talking to him and talking to his corner at the same time. So I really took it away from him mentally in the whole fight. And that's when I won the uh, WBC Youth um, four years ago today. That was my first opportunity. Nobody thought I'd win except my, my supporters and my team. And we got it done. So like with that Chris Congo fight the other day, it weren't the first time I've been doubted. I've been doubted many times in my career. And um, it was just it was on a bigger scale. It was nothing new to me. It was just, it was on a bigger, bigger platform. So, so yeah, I didn't really, it didn't really bother me. Everybody thinking Chris would, Chris would beat me because I've been there before. Well, that, that's what I was talking about earlier when I said that you'd already had one of these kinds of fights. And this, this was the, I mean, this, that, that's a great example of the kind of fight that we've, we've honed in on at times. I mean, remember talking to Josh Warrington about taking an English title fight a four weeks notice away in away in Dudley, and he wasn't expected to win that fight. the The opposition camp got the fight made and approved by the board with him as the opponent because they got home advantage, and they thought they'd win. And it was the same when he took his Commonwealth title fight as well. Again, it was away from home, and and these these are massive these are massive points in your in your career. And and this was one because Ryan Martin, as as you say, he was boxing at home in Swindon. He was undefeated. Part of that. Stable with Paddy Fitzpatrick, uh, Luke Watkins. They they've been making a lot of noise around there and, and selling a lot of tickets. And and you were recruited as somebody who they felt that they could they could beat. I mean, what what I'm curious is, obviously you were always 100 confident that you were going to win. But like you said, you just had a baby daughter. I think you were working a job at the time as well. 
what would have happened if you'd lost? I don't know. Mentally, that training camp was probably the hardest for me because I was working a nine to five. I'd had a newborn baby daughter. So it was very sleepless nights. Um, I would wake up at 5am, go straight to do my session on my road work, get in, get ready for work, do a nine to five all day. So not see my daughter. Then straight from work, I'd go back to the gym, do my, I'd get in at like eight, nine at night. So for the first, and it was a 16 weeks, no, 13, 14 weeks notice we got for that. So it was, it was very hard. And mentally that was the most draining training camp I ever had. Um, so, so yeah, like by the time we got to the fight, there's no way I was losing. There was no way I was I was losing that one. I'd never really thought about what would have happened if I lost. Like I think, especially in them days, if I was to ever lose, I would have probably walked away from boxing because I was there was nothing in it financially for me at all. Like nothing in it financially. And at, and at that point of my life, I had a young family. I had all stuff. It was a, a proper gamble for me. Like it was just mad. But um. But yeah, like we got it done and we moved on, and that's how it has been every single fight I've had. Like I've had doubts every fight I've had, and I've had to prove people wrong. Mikey's story really is so similar to basically the most of the professional fighters that I would have been around when I was a young amateur. So, like I said, back in small league boxing club, we, we had a lot of pros that boxed amateur for us, and then turned pro. But still, still trained a small league. Like you, you know, Mark and Paul Ramsey were ABA champions, boxing world championships as amateurs. You know, real pedigree there. Um, that, you know, they signed managerially with Brendan Ingle, but they never trained up there. They always trained at small league, as they always had done with the amateurs and and, and everything. Then you had like and but then. As I moved on, and like I said, I think I got I got invited down to Spa with Spencer McCracken when I was 17. Went down there, did well. They said I can train when I want. It was a nicer gym. It was near my house, warm. So I, I ended up, you know, over a matter of a few months, I ended up training there all the time. In that gym, you had guys like Roy Rutherford, Anthony Maynard, Spencer McCracken. And I mean, these guys, you know, Roy Rutherford, Roy Rutherford won a British title. Anthony Maynard. Spencer McCracken both fought for a British title. Obviously, Robert was above that, but he was at the end of his career. Um, you know, so I, I, I kind of had a good idea of the, the, the reality of the pro game. Do you know what I mean? It was, um, I knew that <laughs> these got how it might seem from the outside looking in wasn't necessarily how it really was. It was a lot tougher. Most of these guys all worked, you know, how, how couldn't they work? You know, they weren't earning big money. They weren't fighting that regularly. They didn't have, um, I, I knew that unless you were a top amateur with big pedigree, you know, good momentum, turning pro off a deal of a promoter, it, it was a hard, hard road. You know, I, I was doing A-level, I'd started a law degree. So, you know, for me, if I hadn't got that backing, if I hadn't got that, if I hadn't had that momentum from the amateurs turning pro with, with the deal that I got, I don't know where I don't know if I'd have, you know, if I'd have done it the hard way the way you you guys did. Do you know what I mean? Because like I say, I turned pro. I was ABA champion. I had a big deal when I turned pro. I was getting well paid. I was I was a full time pro. You know, to, to work to work five six days a week, train. I, I seen what a grind that was for people. Do you know what I mean? And it was a, a hard road waiting for a phone call, an opportunity. And a lot of these opportunities come short notice jobs as well. You know what I mean? Because you're you are the B side. 
Going in against the Pirates guy. Although, although I have to say, I think this whole period of COVID has been a, a godsend for people like yourself, Mikey, because you know there's, there's, there really is a sort of a onus on promoters to make you know comp- very competitive fights. Maybe they're not all 50-50, but they're certainly sort of 60-40 fights. You know, they, they've got to be competitive if you're on the CV these days. Um, and yeah, it's been it's been a, I suppose it's been a blessing for the likes of yourself who's going to get that opportunity where it isn't someone giving you two weeks notice and you're not fit and you're struggling with weight, but you're actually getting proper notice to go into a, a 50-50 fight. And then it's up to yourself to believe in yourself, to back yourself. And uh when the night when the when the night comes, you've you've got to step up to the plate and and, and you know produce the goods. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um... So I've worked hard for a long time for hardly anything. So I've, there's been many times where if I gave up boxing, it would have just been like I've invested too many years and too much time into the sport to give up now when I'm nearly there. Like I'm nearly at a stage where I'm I'm not going to have to struggle as much financially when I say nearly there. Do you know what I mean? And it has been up till probably now, really. Um, I haven't really fought for a lot of money. I haven't really, like, I've been beating guys. Like, if you look at my record, I'm fighting decent level opponent after decent level opponent. I don't think, take the top two out of the weight division, like Khan and Brook. Like, nobody else has fought, like, as much high level, higher caliber fighters as me in the, in the domestic, like, division. So, um, I've, I've just done a lot for hardly anything. And now to finally get recognised and finally get the credit, um, it, I'm just, I'm, I'm blessed now, you know. The hard work starts now. Well, there's been a hell of a lot of hard work that's got you to, that's got you to this stage. I, I'm curious, like when you, it, it's, it's a weird sport, pro boxing, in, in, in so many ways, because, you know, you have to arrange your own fixtures. There's no kind of, tour to go on uh, you don't have to get a tour card like you do in golf or tennis and then you compete on that tour and if you're if you're better than that then you'll go up to the next one or or you know you'll find your level in football depending on what team you're playing for and in boxing it's just not it's just not like that you you, you see fighters move to 10 and 0 sometimes 15 and 0 when they've got backing and they're full time and they've got great sponsors uh, but they haven't really they haven't really fought anyone uh, did you do you, given the way that you've done it, do you look around the scene sometimes and just think, you know, there's there's quite a lot of accidents waiting to happen out there. Fighters who you look at their record and you just think, that looks great, but I know for certain, or as certain as I can be, that the first time you get put in a hard fight, you're going to lose and it could be over for you. Yeah, yeah, There's there is a lot out there. There's a lot of... Uh fighters with kind of padded records and quite a lot of fighters that will probably be happy to just fight at that certain level and not progress or maybe even retire undefeated and fought like 15 journeymen and, and, and things like that there's a, there's a lot of fighters without ambition um in the welterweight division the top 10 there's only two fighters that have actually fought each other in the top 10 and that's miss me and chris congo so until until all these other talkers and that say they want to fight this guy, want to fight this guy, like they they ain't really got 
Like, do you know what I mean? They, have, they haven't really got my respect until they fight somebody. Because you know, there's a lot of talkers in boxing. So many. So many talkers and, and stuff like me and Chris Congo are the only two that have actually fought, fought somebody in the top ten. Yeah, and I, I remember looking before the fight because, you know, we were going to come and take the fight. I didn't know who you were, um, really. I'd heard the name, but I hadn't seen your box. So I'm looking down the records. Uh, I'm looking down Chris Congo's. I'd seen him box, obviously, against Luther Clay. He boxed well. Um, but that was really, when he fought Luther Clay, that was, a, that was him stepping up from what he'd been fighting. Up until that point, he'd beaten, all the guys he'd beat were guys he was absolutely meant to beat. Most of them didn't have a winning record. And then I looked at your 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 uh, your record, and I seen your last sort of four or five fights. You boxed guys who had only were undefeated or only lost one. I thought, oh, this guy's you know he's he's rolled the dice. He's been in deep. He's had competitive fights. He's been in there with guys that are going in there expecting to beat him. And I know people listening might think you know well, what's he talking about? But you know you've got a guy who's lost more than he's won. I'm not saying he's not going to try and win, but. Early doors, he can be put in his place and he knows, yeah, he's going to survive. That's a journeyman or a gatekeeper. But you'd box guys that were undefeated or had only lost one fight. So they were they were used to winning. They were definitely coming to win. Um, and that that that's a different experience to guys who were beating journeymen. So I think that, that that was probably something that really stood to you against Congo. And I think it's something that's going to stand to you now as really your your apprenticeship is almost is over really your apprenticeship in the pro game is over now and i guess that now you're looking to make your move yeah i'm i'm 27 next week i've been a pro nearly seven years so like i, I want to make my moves now by the time i'm 30 i want to see where i am and and stuff i haven't bought an house yet do you know what i mean so um but like chris I knew from the amateurs, right? Like, he's a few years older than me, but he was junior ABA champion. He won, like, national titles, boxed for GB. Um, and, like, when he turned pro, although he says he had it hard getting fights and stuff like that, there was always that hype around Chris Congo when he turned pro. And with the Luther Clay fight, it's the only really credible opponent he fought. Like, a few years ago, I'd probably done 100 round sparring Luther Clay. And like, although I've got respect for like when I fought um, Ryan Martin, I started sparring him. When I fought Colin Lyons, I was, I was sparring Luther Clay and stuff like that. Like, there's levels to to it. And Luther Clay, for what is it? Like, he never had many amateur fights, and he comes straight into pro boxing. And what he has achieved, like, really good. But he's very limited. And when Chris Congo like, stopped Luther Clay, there was this loads of hype over. He's just looked really good on the fight cam, which he did look good. And, like I, I just thought, I just didn't believe that hype. I didn't because I knew that I was three or four levels above Luther Clay, you know. But what how the media see things? Like the people look at the media and think, "Wow, this Chris Congo's dangerous. This he's invincible and stuff like that." And then the bookies got onto it and like had him like a red hot favorite and stuff like that. So I always knew, like I always knew, like that I'd beat him. So what what would the what were the frustration levels like though when you when you're taking these fights and you're winning these fights you, you mentioned Colin Lyons there that was a that was a good fight for you that was that was a, a good match you know a good name yeah. who'd achieved a lot who was coming towards the end um, I think that might actually have turned out to have been his last fight uh, and then you signed yeah. in in 2018 with with MTK and you've got you've got some wind in your sails and, and Matt mentioned you you pick up a 
a string of wins. You get that WBO European, you get you get well ranked with them, but still your name's not really in the conversation. People are talking about Conor Ben and they're talking about Josh Kelly. Above that, as you said, you've got Khan and Brooke. Chris Jenkins is is the British champion. People are probably talking more about Echo Wesserman um, yeah. than they were talking about about you. I mean, it's 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 hard to keep the it can be hard to keep your chin up when you just feel like you're not going to get a chance because it happens. Like every, everybody says in, in all walks of life, you know, if you persevere, if you persevere, you'll get your opportunity. In boxing, sometimes that isn't true. No, but yeah. Mike, you've been, you've been pro seven years now and, you know, you've, you, you've had hard fights, you're seasoned, you're experienced, you've gone through situations in fights, you've you boxed guys that are undefeated coming in, which with as much belief they're going to beat you as you are them. You haven't boxed a hand-picked load of journeymen, do you know what I mean? And that is going to stand to you. It is standing to you. It stood to you in the fight against Chris Congo. You know, look... I, I, but for a long time, Matt, for, for a long time, Matt, it looked like he wasn't... It just looked like that chance yeah. wasn't going to come. And I just wonder how you how you keep how you keep the faith in, in that situation because the phone just wasn't... It wasn't ringing. People were, were kind of pretending you didn't exist, really. Yeah, well, I was watching... When I sit back at home and watch like the big shows and watching Wilderweight's fight and stuff like that, my name was never mentioned. So I actually didn't watch Conor Ben against Formella, right, on purpose. So I knew my name wasn't, wasn't going to be mentioned. And that was frustrating, you know. But, like, there's been harder times in my career, like, where... It was more than likely I, was, like, I could have gave up boxing because since being with MTK, I have been able to get some opportunities and headline MTK shows and stuff like that. But but going back to the Colin Lyons fight, I was still working a nine to five, and going back on it, it doesn't really get mentioned. Like, I'm actually quite proud to to have shared a ring with such a great fighter early on in my career. Like he was 39 years old; he had not lost for four or five years, but. He was on his last hurrah type thing, you know, and um, he was former European champion, two-weight British champion. And I remember like 10 years before I boxed him, I don't know how many years before, he got to a final, uh, a prize fighter final, and my dad was actually held second for Colin Lyons in his corner that night. And me and my brother got a picture with Colin Lyons that night. And, and like it was mad to think, however many years, eight years down the line, I'd actually fight him. And it was in my hometown of Portsmouth as well. It was like the last time I fought in Portsmouth. And like, like last time I stopped somebody as well, to be fair. But um, yeah, it was like actually so like honoured to be able to share a ring so early on in my career with someone like that. And at the time, he had aspirations to fight for the British title again. Because the last time he had lost, like four or five years before, it was for the British title. Um, and I like... It, Everyone was saying it was going to be like he was going to outman the young boy. I, I was only like 11 and 0, and I was what 22 years old, 23 years old, or something. But, um, but yeah, after that fight, I uh nearly got a disciplinary at work for slacking. I worked in an office job, marketing job for slacking in the build up to, to that uh to that fight, like making weight and just so I was just slacking and nearly got a disciplinary, so I handed him a notice. That was the last time I ever like, worked and handed in my notice. I had a young family at home and I had no sponsorship. It was a proper ballsy thing to do. But um, I managed 
get sponsorship after and everything works out fine. But and lots I signed with MTK after and I've been able to get some opportunities. But when it when it come to getting these opportunities, my opportunities that I wanted was on the big stage against these big guys like like the big names and stuff. And it was just never going to happen. I, I was calling out Connor's name for four years now. <laughs> four years. I mean, everyone calls his name, but uh, I've been calling for a big fight on the big stage for a long time. And I've been knocking the door for ages, like I have, but my name was never, ever mentioned until now. Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the one stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan. New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts. One Star Recruits. Well, we're recording this um, on April the 8th, I think it is, April the 8th. So by the time this, this goes out, Conor Ben's fight will have been and gone against against Sammy Vargas. So we won't we won't get into we won't get into that. But let's just have a quick word before we go about about other things that have happened in, in your division recently. I mean, what did you make of what did you make of Josh Kelly against David Avanesian? But I mean after the fight, everybody seemed to agree that we all knew this was too soon for Josh Kelly. And it's just a classic case of bullshit 2020 hindsight. Because in the week of the fight, people weren't saying that. In the week of the fight, people were saying this is a really good fight. This is a 50-50 fight. Then, of course, he loses uh, and probably allied with the manner of the defeat. All of a sudden, uh, everybody knew that this was this was a step too far too soon. As I say, just, just total revisionist horseshit the like of which you get in boxing quite quite a lot but so all right so two questions um what did you think of the match heading into it did you think it was a good one for him or was it dangerous and what did you think of what actually happened originally i thought it was very dangerous for josh kelly and i personally thought avanesian would beat him i'd thought he'd probably get to him late on in the fight uh, and then fight week came I completely changed my mind and I see how confident Josh was. I see how good shape he was in because I've sparred Josh a couple of times. He is massive. But well, like compared to like me, I sparred him. He's, he's a big boy. And the way I see him, like down in weight and looking good, I thought, right, I think Josh is going to pull this off. And I actually put a bet on Josh. <laughs> but, um, but then like in the fight, he looked good for two, three rounds. And then it, it got, it, it like Avanesian was landing them body shots. And then, oh, mate, after a few rounds, it was so one-sided. Do you know what I mean? Like the levels in opponents, like he jumped so, so far, so quick, I, I think. Okay, what, what, what was the conversation like after the fight or even before, the, before and after the fight with Congo in terms of with Eddie Hearn, Matt Room? Is it like, this is a one-fight deal, so there you go. Or is it like, look, if you win this, this can happen, that can happen. And where I, where, 
what how do you see the next three fights playing out for you? Like what what what's the future look like for you? What are the you know what what have your team MTK Eddie? What have they said to you? Um, well, Eddie came to find me in my change rooms afterwards, and obviously the like everybody goes on about the winner stays on in fights like this. So that's what I was planning on saying to him, and he said it to me. Like he said it to me afterwards and stuff like that. So. I'm, I'm presuming he's a man of his word and stuff like that. He seems to like me. He's like posting pictures on his social media ever since of me and stuff like that and, and stuff like that. So that's that. So I'm just waiting to, to see what's next. And Lee and um, have said there have been some big talks for my future, exciting talks for my future. But he says to stay a little bit patient a couple of weeks. And uh, he shouldn't have even told me that because that was the hardest thing in the world to stay patient. Like, I don't know what's next, but I've been promised what next is, is going to be good for my future. So just have to wait and see. Just have to wait and see. Like, for me right now, I don't have a clue. Yeah, but in an ideal world, what would your next fight be? What what type of opponent? Yeah, like, would it be the British title? Or would it be someone um, like that? Well, I don't know if... I don't know if uh, Chris Jenkins and Esuman is it going to get rescheduled or is that, has it been rescheduled? Those those were supposed to fight, weren't they? And there was an injury. But um, like if that gets rescheduled, like I've been ahead of the British champion for two years, so I'd like to like obviously win that title. But I'm not going to wait. I'm not going to wait. I've got a in next month's um, rankings. I'm going to be in the top five. Though. I think there's bigger fights and fights that suit me more financially um, than than the Jenkins fight. But obviously Lee and then MTK are great at what they do. Um, and I've got full faith and trust in them to guide my career the right way. If I had it my fight, my next ideal fight would be Virgil Ortiz or Jared Ennis or something like that. But um, we, we'll just see how things pan out. Like, like, we'll see how things pan out. I've just got to be a little bit patient and trust MTK and stay ready stay well to be fair I had five days out of after my fight I had five days out and I was back in the gym and I've been back running already um, last year when the first lockdown hit uh, I I was supposed to fight Lewis Green and it was a few before the lockdown so it got cancelled so then what I did is when people say oh you've got to do your home workouts or you've got to run I didn't run and I had a few drinks with my friends and eating what I like. And before you knew it, I ballooned up in weight last year. Last summer, I was near on 13 stone. And um, I, that's never really been the case for me, but I lost so much motivation. And then off, I, they got me a fight against Martin Harkin in at an MTK show. He was an unbeaten puncher from Scotland. And uh, the whole camp was weight loss. Uh, I had 12 weeks and I, I went from, I probably lost two, just over, like, about two stone just over in uh, in 12 weeks. And I learned a lesson from, in, like, although I won quite comfortably, it wasn't an enjoyable training camp whatsoever. And um, on, like straight after the Harkin fight in October, I had no time out of the gym. Well, I was like, I ate what I want a little bit, but as long as I'm training, my weight's okay. And uh, Christmas morning, I was running. New Year's morning, I didn't like drink or anything New Year's. Uh, I, uh, New Year's, um, so I trained all over the Christmas period. So I've got the call 
Chris Conford, oh, I'd not a couple of weeks. I was light anyway. So I've learned my lesson now from I've just got to stay on the ball. And what's next for me is big. Like, this is a big year for me. So I know I've got to stay ready. Um, I'm already back. I'm already back. My, my brother is fighting for the English title in uh, six weeks. So And I live with him. So um, it's easy for me to stay motivated. It's, it's not hard whatsoever. Like, um, so, yeah, it's good. Like, I, he went to strength conditioning this morning, but I was speaking to you guys. But other than that, I'm still training. Okay, great. So just just before we um, just before we do wind this up, just just I'm kind of I'm sort of fascinated with what happens next with with Josh Kelly because we had Adam Booth on the podcast a few weeks ago and he said to us, "I know why he lost that fight. It was nothing to do with with skill. It was nothing to do with." Um, his ability, uh, I know what it was. And 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 then in true Booth fashion, he was never going to tell us what, what it was. I didn't even bother asking him because I knew he was, <laughs> I knew he wouldn't tell us. But what, how hard do you think it's going to be for him to, to come back from something like that? I really, really hope he does because I always want to see all fighters come back when they, when they suffer uh, a defeat um, because you, you know how much it means to them. But that's, I mean, that's a tough one, isn't it? The way that it, the way that it happened. I know you're not him, and, and everybody's different. But just watching on, that's a task, isn't it? That's a task, I think, to rehabilitate him. Does yeah, he need to move up in weight, maybe? Well, if if Adam Booth's saying all of them, and he hasn't mentioned the weight, surely it's, he's got to move up to one five four now, isn't he? Like he's he is a big welterweight. Like, I've I've sparred him a couple of times. He is big. Um, but I don't know when Josh turned pro there was so much hype about him there was so much hype he was going to be a world champion in 10 fights and all that he was like the poster boy straight away so there was a lot of pressure there's a lot a lot of pressure since he turned pro and I, I reckon that's why and then he had that fight out in, um, against Ray Robinson and didn't look great I think that's why he got the Avanesian fight made I thought he had a point to prove because he's very, very talented. Like, he is a very talented fighter. I think, as a, all of the way out of ways, Josh Kelly's the most talented. Um, but, but yeah, I think maybe a weight, a weight issue, like, if, if it wasn't anything else, because talent-wise, he has got it, definitely. What, what do you think, Matt? We, we, we discussed it, but not in any, in any great depth. I mean, it's the kind of major thing that has happened in the, in the division, in the welterweight division over the, last, um, over the last couple of months. I think he did say when he spoke to Adam too that it, that it wasn't the weight. And yeah. as I said, I didn't kind of probe and ask him what it was because I mean, we all know what would have happened there. There would have been a kind of like, uh, a, 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 like I say, an enigmatic smile and then he would have told me nothing. But, but what... What what do you think? What, what what's your, what's your kind of if if you were managing him, what would you do? Well, I don't know how tight he is at the weight, so you know I can't really say in, in regard to that. Um, look, he stepped up and he was obviously wasn't quite ready for that for, for someone like Avanesian. He walked him down, didn't he? Yeah, he looked he looked good early doors. So like I said, talent, speed, no problem there. But doing it and maintaining it over 12 rounds against someone as experienced as Abanessian, who's, you know, like we said, look, you've got 12 rounds, so it's like 12 battles and the fight is a war. 
but sometimes you might be losing the battles, but you're winning the war. And that's what was happening with Abernessy. And even though early on, Kelly was sharp, quick, he was expending a lot of energy. He was a pace that he obviously couldn't sustain, you know, and Abernessy, you know, was sinking the body shots in, kept walking him down, putting the pressure on him, forcing the pace. So he, he caught up with him. Now, was it, a, was it a step too soon? Well, obviously it was, you know, you know, beforehand. I, I mean, I've got to be honest, I picked Kelly. And I, but, but, I, but I did say I'm basing this war on what I've heard in the gym and on his potential and his promise, as opposed to what I've actually seen, because he hadn't, he hadn't done it yet uh, to, to, you know, he hadn't beaten anyone, or, you know, like he, he drew with Ray Robinson, who was a good fighter, but it was a draw, he didn't beat him. So, you know, there was, it wasn't, so what, I picked Kelly, not based on what he had done, but I'm, I'm based on what, I'd heard he was capable of, really. That, that's what I was basing it on. So, look, I suppose you've got to look now and think, well, you, you rolled the dice, it didn't pay off. So now he's got to, you know, maybe take things a little bit slower. You know, so in terms of his uh, rate of how he's going to climb that ladder and challenge for a world title, if, if he is going to, it, it's going to be a slower road. I think he needs, there still needs a bit more schooling, a bit more experience. Um he needs to work on certain aspects of his game as well. Maybe he has to make some style adjustments as well. Maybe he has to move up in weight. He's certainly, there's a few things he's got to look at. I mean, he boxes like somebody. The style he boxes at, like, is someone that's a massive puncher. And even though he's physically strong, I'm not sure if he hits hard enough to box with the style that he boxes at. You know, because Avanesia seemed happy enough just to walk him down, walk through him, really. Um, so I don't know, maybe he has to make some style adjustments or maybe he has to move up in weight. But if he moves up in weight, then he's going to definitely going to have to make style adjustments because he's not a ferocious banger at welterweight. And if he moves up to like middle of a super welterweight, you know, I guess, you know, the power is, is going to be less so of, of, of a, a factor for him. So I don't know, you know, without knowing all the ins and outs, it's impossible to say, but he certainly needs to, to look at things. And make some adjustments. So, just, just with regard to um, with regard to Avanesian, um, Mikey, he, he's going to be looking for. Well, his team was saying that he's he's going to look for you know to box backed up towards a, a world title fight. Maybe I have heard that he might fight Daniel Yulusinov, um, former standout Kazakh amateur who's who's with Matchroom uh, as well. I mean, you, you look at yeah, would you fancy Avanesian um, that European title level? Would you fancy Yulusinov because you know that 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 could be a real interesting fight between a pair of you. Hundred um, percent. I think Avanesian deserves a world title, like personally. Uh, but with the world champions at one four seven, they're all like tied up with each other a little bit. Like, will he be able to get something soon? I don't know. So, if he wants to defend as European, I'm here. Hundred percent. Like. I want to keep pushing on. Like, I want to keep pushing on. I'd love to fight for the European title. Um, well, if anyone domestically deserves that, well, I'll sit myself at the top of the pile, really. I, like Domestically, I'm, I'm the only one that's beat a credible domestic fighter. So, um, 100%. And I'll fight either of them. How do, you see, how do you see the domestic scene at Welterweight? Give me your top five there. Top, I think the domestic scene is unbelievable as a fan. As a fan, uh, 
Do you want me to add Brook and Khan in or? No, Lee, Lee, I think leave Brook and Khan because you know they're you know they're probably I don't if they if either of them are going to box again, it'll probably be just each other. I don't think there's much left in either. But like them aside, yeah, I don't think they'll even fight them. Man. Yeah, I would probably, I'd probably put myself top of the top of the pile. Um, I'd still probably put Josh Kelly number two, like, and then Ben number three. Uh, Jenkins four and a Lewis Crocker fifth. That's how I'd see the top five. And like, there's a lot of people talk about the Connor Ben's, the Josh Kellys, um, or the Chris Congos at the time, and Marku. But like, they don't act, like. There's a lot of good welterweights that don't really get a lot of notice. Like for like me for a while, um, Lewis Crocker's a, a great talent. Like I've, I've sparred him once now, but he's a good prospect coming through. Uh, Samuel Antwi won the English title the other day. He's the only domestic fight that's ever called me out, I think. <laughs> you know, so there's, there's great Eko Sumo. Uh, but there's there's a great little like pot to be in the mixing. So um, as a fan, I think the welterweight division domestically is thriving at the moment. What, what do you make of Marku? Because as you say, he, he's a real interesting one, I think, because he's, you know, he's Albanian. He... he, he got a background in, in kickboxing and, and kind of MMA and then he's turned over to, to boxing and he's come to London and a bit like Krishnik Kato did back in the day, he's managed to mobilise Albanian support within London to the point where he's managed to sell out York Hall, which is which is amazing. It's incredible the amount of tickets that he sells. He's got plenty to say. He's got a bit of a kind of uh, Eastern European mystique about him, which people seem to kind of enjoy don't they you know you think about Loma and you think about Usyk completely different level of fighter obviously but but just the way they carry themselves and the way they speak so he's he's done brilliantly um on on that front and he signed with Matchroom and he's getting big big opportunities and you cannot knock any of that because there's a lot of work that's gone into all of that but when you look at how you had to how you had to do things and how long it took you to to get to where you are now do you kind of look at him with a little bit of a, a wry smile? I mean, what, what do you make of him? Uh, well, I'll see an interview he did um, at fight week for his last fight where people were saying the top weights and he was saying what he thinks of them all. My name was mentioned and he said he didn't have a clue who I was, even though at the time I was actually ranked above Connor Bed in the UK. Like I was, other than... Um, Brooke, I was num- number one on box rec, so uh, I, I, I don't like how disrespectful he is, like not just to me, to everybody, but I like how confident and ambitious he is. I really do like that. I like like he's got a lot of support and stuff like that. But he's a nine fight novice. Like he's a, he, like he got he looked all right when he beat um, uh, what's the point-sized powerhouse, what's his name? Charlton. Ryland, Ryland uh, Charlton. Charlton. He looked all right beat when he beat Charlton, but at the end of the day, he's, yeah, he's still a novice as well, so these are like nine fight, like novices, like, and he's going to his, he'll beat all of these names and stuff. I think he needs to earn the right to be mentioned. I mean, he's great Personally. getting title shots, like, he's great getting title shots, you said, mentioned that Vanessa, and you got a European title shot, Chris Jenkins, sometimes things are tied up and that doesn't quite happen. If Eddie Hearn rings you, Two, three days' time, and says, Listen, I'm doing a show middle of June. Do you want to fight Marco? What are you going to say? Um, 
depends what what they're offering money-wise, really, because Marku's a step back for me. But it's exposure, isn't it? He's got a personality, he's got profile, and if you're fighting him on, you know, on, I don't know, on the undercard of a big, big fight, say, yeah. or, you know, the, it's exposure again, it's pushing your name back out there, isn't it? Yeah, but now ev everyone's talking about me, so now do I really need him? Unless the money was going to be like, all right, like if it was offered to me two weeks ago, I would have, I would have said, yeah, any money possible. I'd fight Marco, even though I believe it was a step back, even I'd fight him because I'd need that platform. Now, like potentially I've got this platform now. So well, you want to build uh, on that? Yeah. But if whatever's offered, they said winner stays on, like, whatever's offered to me and suits my career like it benefits my career I will take and Marku I, I would think would probably be an easier fight than Chris Congo but the money's right I would 100% take it because of the platform and the exposure and stuff like that you know you know what I think by the time we by the time this goes out it will be you know, these kinds of things may have been resolved. We might know what's next for you. I wouldn't be that surprised, actually, if that turned out to be what it is, because it's just an easy, it's an easy fight to make, as you say, so long as, you know, you are going to get properly rewarded for it. And I think uh, if if the terms meet with your approval, I think the more you think about it, the more you would be all over it like a rash because I know how confident you would be that 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 you'd be able to you'd be able to beat him. So it'd be great if that if that's um, if uh, that turns out to to be the case by the time by the time everybody's listening to this. Well, we'll 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 wrap it up there, Mikey. It's been great fun chatting. Um, like you said, you know, you kind of flew under the radar, uh, and it seemed it seemed right and proper for us having covered that fight to to get you on and 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 go into things in a bit more in a bit more depth. So I've got to say as well, it's like, I look at, I look at this display on the top of the screen and this will be lost on people who, who are listening to the, to the audio format, which is pretty much everybody for this. But I look like I've been underground for the last 10 years. I mean, it's like, <laughs> I, I look so white. It's unbelievable. Like Macklin looks, you know, he's kind of halfway between us. You've got a decent tan there. Macklin's kind of like, yeah, he, he's halfway between us. And I look like, I look like someone from the walking dead. I'm hiding uh, my <laughs> the contrast in colours is just unbelievable. I'm the, the palest man in Western Europe at the minute. Um, I, I, I've been in the running for that title for quite some time, though, so it doesn't doesn't come as a surprise. Anyway, anyway, we'll leave it there. Thanks, thanks for listening, everybody. If you could do the usual, get onto iTunes and give us a rate and a review, that would be great. Get over to YouTube if you get the if you get the opportunity. Help us out with uh, clicking on subscribe there, and um, we'll have plenty more. Plenty more coming you, your way. Actually, as you listen to this, I should be um, into the second week at the World Youth Championships in Poland. I say should because at the time of recording, I've still got to take my PCR test before before departure. And uh, if I turn up with a positive test for that, then I won't have gone anywhere. I'll have been in my house uh, for the last for the last ten days. But that's where I should be at the minute, and we'll be bringing you plenty of of stuff from that. Checking out the well, basically the best young fighters in the world, all in one place. Um, should be great. So anyway, take it easy, everybody. We'll catch you again soon. On the right, Not that Maggie. Back in town. I
said Jenny Diver Whoa, Sookie Tawdry Look out to Miss Lottie Lynn And old Lucy Brown Yes, that line falls on the right, babe Not that Maggie's Back in Podcast Network.